Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Bounty episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre with me is Z. In this episode, we have an XSS to RCE and DOM PDF, an environment variables leak in Chrome, Edge, and Opera, and a container escape in the uh, Cryo Kubernetes engine, uh, which we'll, we'll save for last. So first, we'll get into the uh, browser system environment variables leak. Um, this, this is kind of funny. Just before we jump into that, I do want to make one comment about this week's Spot the Vuln, and yeah, that is um, the first function in there, I have it as read line, and then inside of, I think it's process token, I end up using the function read data. Um, same function, I just misnamed it in one place. So, when you're reading that, uh, it's supposed to go to read line. Which I don't fill out anyhow. I just explain a little bit about what it does in a comment. So if you're taking a look at that, that's what's going on there. All right, cool. So yeah, we'll start off with uh, yeah, kind of the funny in terms of how stupid easy issue it is in some various Chromium-based browsers such as Chrome, Edge, and Opera. Um, the bug here is in the file system access API for uh, showing a save file dialog picker. Um, and the bug is dead simple. If you simply use this function and specify an environment variable in the suggested name field, um, which is basically what it'll put for the, the file name uh, by default, um, if the user then saves the, saves the file without changing that file name explicitly, um, that environment variable actually gets resolved and will be can be retrieved by the attacker by just getting the file name after the after that save file dialog was successfully closed. So um, yeah, I mean, you can leak environment variables, which is pretty significant in some cases because it's not that uncommon for secrets to be stored there, whether it be API keys or tokens or something like that, well, um, some form of uh, I, I mean, yes, but I, I mean, how often is your API going to be seeing a save file dialog and like using it? Like, oh, yes, environment yeah, so. variables do that, but, like, this is more of a user attack. And, I mean, yeah. I don't really store my secrets and environment variables on, like, my desktop and browser. So, I, I was about to get a little bit into the impact. Um, yeah, so, this only works against Windows. Uh, it doesn't work against Mac or Linux. And uh, this is one of those attacks that has some requirements on the user. Um, particularly, you have to get them to, you know, save the file do dialog, which is pretty loud. And if anyone looks at the name field, it'd be pretty suspicious. Um, that said, they do detail a scenario where this could be taken advantage of in a somewhat realistic way. Uh, and that's by using the context of like a game or something like that, where the user has to hold enter, uh, which when that JavaScript runs and the dialog is shown, uh, since the focus automatically goes to the save button, it'll close the dialogue quickly. That said, this would probably e be even more suspicious if you saw this happen. Um, although by that point, the attacker would probably already have whatever they're trying to exfil. Um, like Z said, though, in a lot of cases where you have secrets and environment variables, you're like this attack is not really going to be viable. It's it's not too common. You see that on a uh, on like a desktop user situation. Though I can think of some situations like. If you're a developer and you have some tokens or something that you want to use for, uh, like, let's say an access token for Git or something, um, you might keep that in your environment variables and that, that could be useful to XFIL. But I mean, your regular that, everyday yeah. user is probably not going to have something like that that's that useful in the environment variables to, to exfiltrate. 
I mean, even that I think is a bit of an ask versus like using a environment file, um, or just passing it into your project rather than polluting like your entire system environment because this is um as uh Gershak, I, I'm not sure if I said that correctly, uh, mentions it only captures the global environment variables. So if you just set it on your user, you're not going to be able to pick that out uh, using this. I mean, I, I don't think it's a terribly realistic attack on a whole, but it is interesting, you know, that it's there. It is possible. They did get a $10,000 bounty out of it, so fair game to them on reporting it. I mean, it, it's it's an interesting bug to have. Um I mean, just putting the environment variables in unexpected places can sometimes leak them. So this is just kind of a case of that. Um, but in terms of like a real attack here, I mean, like you said, save file dialogue is going to be pretty loud. Um, you have to. So, I mean, I could imagine kind of the case of like leaking somebody's name going on like the doxing aspect. And if they are using the API key, another aspect is like this is kind of a single shot at it per save dialogue, so you need to know what that environment key is actually named. Random API key, you know, it might be secret or GitHub secret or something. Or it might have, you know, a little bit more like config or like project name config token or something like that, where it becomes a lot harder to generically target this. Uh, Shershak says, however, isn't this Windows bug rather than Chromium? Um, I would say it's Chromium because they should be sanitizing the uh, suggested name before passing it to the Windows uh, file dialog. Um, I could kind of see how you might put it on Windows, but I, I feel like this is more on Cro like on Chromium side. Well, so what does Firefox do? Because uh, I noticed I'm not that totally they, sure, I haven't tried it. <laughs> because they explicitly do call out that Brave and Firefox are safe from this. Um, so that does tend to indicate to me that it is something specific to the browsers, although Brave is a Chromium-based browser and they've they're not vulnerable on this, so I'd assume that has to do with some of the privacy enhancements. Um uh, so perhaps they were either just aware of this and patched it at that level. Um just like a privacy enhancement thing or something else. I'm not sure what the actual patch was on this one. Um, so I, I, I looked at it a little bit. Um, basically, what the fix here was was to remove the percents symbol from being a legal character. Um, so they switched out any percents for an underscore, basically. Um, so yeah, just sanitized that suggested name field. Okay. Um, pretty yeah, pretty straightforward I mean, fix. I, I could see why. You might put it on Windows also. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely kind of want to put this on, on Chromium, though. I mean, it, it's a Windows feature being abused, but something that Chromium itself could kind of defend against. Yeah, it is one of those things where you could kind of see responsibility on both sides a little bit. But yeah, I'd edge towards Chromium. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. being able to save a file with an environment, like, as a generic feature, you know, a, um, uh, like, some software just calling in, using that, like, it makes sense as a feature on Windows. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, 
obviously, uh, I believe they got the bounty from Chromium or from Google, so we'll yeah. put it there. Uh, and yeah, there's there's this image kind of uh, down at the bottom of the readme that kind of shows exactly what's, what I was talking about with the fix. So, uh, yeah, I, I was kind of a little bit taken aback when I looked at this initially, and I thought, you know, usually when you see these types of br- types of browser issues where some potentially sensitive data is getting leaked, there's a bit of a complex attack scenario. But then I, I looked at this one, and I was like, wait a minute, you just, <laughs> you just call this one function with a field set to an environment variable, and you can just leak it like that? <laughs> like, wow, okay. Um, so it was a lot simpler than I expected it to be, but the attack scenario um, is still quite an ask, I think, um, in terms of it being useful. So, yeah, one of those bugs where it's it's a little bit more fun, um, and I don't think there's a ton of practical impact, but there could potentially be in, in very specific circumstances. Yeah, I mean, like I kind of mentioned, the idea of doxing, I think, you know, could definitely be used there, perhaps. Um, there are places where it could be used, but it is pretty targeted. It's still, I I mean, I, I use this a lot, but a fun attack regardless. Uh, Rudamol also mentions here, I guess, the reason why Firefox isn't vulnerable is because Firefox doesn't actually support the show save file picker. So, therefore, Firefox isn't vulnerable. Oh, interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. Um, then again, I... You know, the little bit of web app dev that I do, I haven't had to do, like, a save file dialog, so. Uh, but that's an interesting, like, quirk to be aware of, so. Cool. All right, uh, we'll move on to another trivial issue here, which is uh, a Hacker One report that was submitted to Yodi, which is, like, a digital signing app. This was basically a rate limit bypass for brute forcing the pin that you could use to access the app. Um, basically on the app, it seems they intended and tried to enforce this five minute timeout after five or six failed attempts, fairly standard for anything that has a a pin, especially like a short pin. Um, but the problem is their rate limiting here relied on the local date and time of the device. So by just changing that date and time, which you can totally do in the, uh, in the phone settings, uh, you could just bypass that rate limiting and then brute force the pin. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess just kind of demonstrating how problematic it can be to rely on user controllable data that you might not think about being as user controllable, but something like the, the local date and time is, is very controllable. And and we, you know, it it reminds me of those older attacks, which I, I don't think you really see too much anymore because it's so well known at this point, but, you know, bypassing trial limitations on desktop apps and stuff by changing the date and time. Uh, I remember when that was kind of a, a common trick to use. So, yeah, I guess just kind of breathing life into that older idea. But uh, in this case, for for brute forcing pins on uh, on the the Yodi iOS app. So, yeah, in fairness, like um, usually, like something like this would be absurd to see if this were like a online system where it's sending out a request and then like checking the pin and getting like the time out of that or something. Cause this is kind of device local brute force stopping and um, you're kind of limited in terms of how many resources you can like look for to determine how, how much time has passed. 
um, because this is just the local pin. Um, I mean, it. I get why developers might choose to kind of look at that. Not like I said, not really thinking about the fact they can go ahead and change it. Um, but it is one of those cases where you don't have a lot of options there. I mean, if the time has changed, can you easily figure out you know what the say Unix timestamp is usually based off something like that, or do you? I mean, it's just, it's a harder problem to solve than it might appear. It's not just the fact that it's trusting the local time, but the fact that they are kind of doing this offline on a user-controlled device, so there aren't a lot of places you can really reach out to to actually get that information. Yeah, I just wanted to look up quickly if there was, like, a secure time source that iOS provides for this type of purpose, because I could see that being something that Apple would provide, but where I don't really do, like, mobile app dev, I'm not certain on that. Um, so what you'd probably want to do here, um, I mean, what, not really going for a timeout, but using a proof-of-work style hash, so just requiring the actual iOS CPU to do a bit more work than usual. Um, that wouldn't be a timeout per se, but it would be a way of preventing the brute forcing by requiring this harder hash to figure out. Um, another option could just be um, implementing your own kind of internal ticker. Uh, so then you track like, okay, it's been this many ticks since uh, their last pin attempt and kind of creating a proxy to the time based off of how many ticks have gone by. Um, I'm not entirely sure if it would work um another option is just taking advantage of like an ios timer for like x minutes if that will be fooled by changing the time i don't believe they are i do remember looking into this once quite a long time ago um i i don't i believe like the kernel will be able to track that somewhat separately like if you just change the time but you set a timer for x minutes it'll be able to track that properly um Sorry, by timer, do you mean like a uh, like a kernel track timer so that even if you close the application or whatever or suspend it, it won't um, oh, like fair kill call the timer? Closing. Yeah, I was thinking user-sided, so um, uh, that, yeah, fair point. Um, I think Rudimal mentions but free crypto coins and the idea of um, using the proof of work and just mining coins. I mean... Rather than advertisement, maybe. <laughs> um, also, as our chat, without server-side, user can modify the app. Yeah, user can modify the app. However, when you modify the app, you don't have access to the same file system. Uh, like, you should still be uh, sandboxed off, uh, so your application gets its own file system. So when you reinstall that new app, I believe it will sit with a new file system. Or with, like, in its own isolation. Uh, because it's it's a modified application, so you're going to unless you're able to like re-sign it with the same key and actually pretend to be the original application, um, in which case it's already too, kind of too compromised. And iOS doesn't really give you a lot of ways to work around on that. But otherwise, just modifying the application would be basically creating a modded app, um, and presumably you're wanting to access this particular user's information, uh, and not just. Uh, access to like a secret file or something that's universal to everybody with the app. 
Yeah, and Shershak also mentioned hashing would be terrible due to battery usage as heat, etc. Um, yeah, I think what IBR said um, makes sense. And, and the way that in regular use cases, it wouldn't really be a problem. Your, you know, your regular user is only going to be submitting uh, the pin like once or twice uh, unless they're, you know, really forgetful or something. But like, it's not going to impact regular users very much. It will mostly impact people who are trying to root the pin or, or recover the pin if they're not the original user trying to authenticate, uh, which is kind of, a, you know, I don't think it's too worrisome to affect the battery life against somebody who's trying to do that. So, and um, I mean, don't go insane with uh, the type of hashing. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, um, jumping on IAPR also mentioned anything client side would be bypassable once you get some like freedom running on the device. And that's kind of the case. Like once you're able to recompile it um, and add freedom, in, or if you're rooting the device, it is kind of game over in terms of this. This is kind of assuming you can't just reinstall the application and you don't have the device rooted. Um, it is worth mentioning though, like so there's been talk about like modifying the app and using Frida to inject into the app. This is talking about an iOS application. It's not Android. Um, and the situation there is very different. iOS is pretty locked down. Um, with Frida on iOS, I'm pretty sure you can only inject into apps that are explicitly like flagged as debuggable. So, and you're like, I don't think you're really going to be able to imagine that scenario with being able to modify the app and, and, you know, reinstall it either, or at least not without a lot more work. So that's worth calling out too, is the fact that like iOS is in play here. It, well, usually... if there is more user side security than you would expect, maybe, uh, if you're just thinking at it from like an Android point of view. I believe still with Frida, you can recompile the application, basically install it as a new app. Um, so again, you wouldn't have access to the original application's data. You'd be in its own like isolated sandbox, but you can still use Frida on iOS. Um, even if the application itself doesn't give that, you would just recompile it in with the Frida stub. Um, pretty similar to what you would do on um, what you would do on Android, except you know the signing process is a bit different when it comes to uh, installing iOS applications. So maybe this is just a bit of ignorance, but you're talking about like dumping and, and recompiling an app for iOS. How would you even be able to dump the application unless you have like a jailbroken state or some privilege escalation? Is that even possible? Like, I, I don't. Well, I don't you see would how need you the app's package. So you wouldn't necessarily need to do that on the same device that was vulnerable. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I, I wasn't really thinking in those terms. So, yeah, okay, you could pull the package from, like, a jailbroken device or whatever and then recompile it for a target device. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, but again, you're ending up, as I understand, you would end up in a different um, sandbox, basically, of the file system. So, for an actual use case, you probably want access to the original files, which you're not getting when you go this route. Um, so, like, it's useful if you're, like, doing security testing against an application. You just want to have that access to see, you know, the requests and everything going on. Then it's kind of useful. Um, but it's a lot less useful in a case where you want to access the same data the original app had. So, I mean, 
it, it yeah i mean it, it's an option but i don't think you're really doing that to bypass it in this case you just got wrote and at the time you have a rooted device there's nothing really the app the app can do besides like trying to detect the root and some things like that, which is just a big cat and mouse game. Uh, root them all asked, is the file system encrypted by default on iOS, by the way? Uh, I believe if you use um, like a passcode or whatever on the device, the there is like encrypted per app file systems that uh, are kind of handled invisibly by, by the operating system. Um, but yeah, I'm not a hundred percent certain on like the per app basis, but I'm pretty sure just by the little bit that I've read um, in the Apple documentation that yeah, the per app has like a or each app has like an, its own encrypt encrypted file system. All right. Um, so yeah, not not really too much in the Hacker One report. Unfortunately, I, I would be interested in how this was fixed, but unfortunately, that's not really in the uh, comments here. As you scroll down the comments, you find it's more more and more the original researcher um, asking for updates and not getting anything, uh, just kind of talking to themselves. Um, and then when they do finally get an update, it's like, yeah, hey, we're handling this uh, and we'll do like a limited disclosure. But yeah, I couldn't really find any details on how they fixed this issue, because like you said, it's not a super easy uh, thing to get right. Um, you kind of have to design the application around a secure Oracle or do something like proof of work, like we were talking about. So yeah, not quite sure which route they went, but it's, it's fun to speculate on that. All right. So uh, we'll get into our next topic here, which is a post that details two bugs in an undisclosed website that uses DOM PDF um, and XSS and a bit of a misconfiguration type issue, um, which we'll, we'll get into when we get to it. And actually Z I'll, I'll let you take this one away. Cause uh, I know you found this one interesting. Yeah, and this one was, it's just kind of a fun chain of issues, it starts off. Um, they started off with an XSS. XSS in a lot of applications is, you know, worth reporting. It matters to have XSS there. That said, this particular application, what they notice is it ha the website itself has no, like, sensitive information, uh, doesn't even have any authentication, so it's not like you're stealing... Um, it's not like you're stealing a token or something, uh, or getting somebody's or session hijacking. Not like you're going to be able to do any of that. Basically, the only thing you can do with an excess at that point is kind of reputational damage, you know, start installing malware, targeting users that way. But there was this functionality to export some of the pages as a PDF. So that meant the server side would kind of read the page, um, you know, read the DOM and figure out the or generate a PDF based off of that. Um, and that was done using DOM PDF. So they were to take the XSS, and while they couldn't inject JavaScript that would be executed by, like, DOM PDF, um, they could inject arbitrary HTML into there. Um, so kind of, a, in a sense, a weaker attack. So they have an XSS, kind of downgrading it to just the HTML injection, but it's ending up in the PDF. Where that got a little bit interesting is when they started injecting styles. Uh, and specifically, um, or I will also call out one of the configuration options in uh, DOM PDF is to have embedded PHP. That was disabled in this case, so they couldn't just embed 
PHP uh, using the XSS and get code execution that way. But there is a configuration that is remote file access. Um, I believe in this case, they did have it turned on, although the attack they actually talked about would work regardless of that being turned on. Um, they do call it out that the font feature in particular will still grab files. Um, just try to find it in here. There we go. Um, regardless of the setting, DOM PDF allows loading custom fonts through the font-based CSS rules. Uh, which is where they were able to get a bit of a remote file being downloaded onto the server. Uh, but through the source URL, it would basically take that, download the file, it would do a little bit of checking on it. And and the checking was literally just like, does this font load? Um, that's line 28 on the exam on the code they have here, just font load with that local file that they downloaded. Um, and so you can maybe guess where this is going. Oftentimes when you have a file being downloaded, and in this case, um, also control over the file name, uh, the file name would be based off of, um, it would use like the original extension, um, the font name, it would add on a little bit about the font's weight, so like a normal or bold or whatever type font it is. Um, and it would save that just into its local to DOM PDF. So wherever DOM PDF is, it would load that into this lib font, update a separate thing with a cache fit, just like an array saying where, you know, this font, look it up, put it there. Um, basically, they had somewhat control over the file name, not really where it was being loaded. However, like a lot of PHP applications, everything lives in the web root. You have the web room where your like main pages are and all your libraries are just like relative to your index page or something. Uh, not not a good practice to do that, especially if you have just all PHP being executable, but that is a super common setup to see. So they were able to basically use this font to smuggle in a PHP file. So it did keep the original extension, did add a little bit of a hash on it uh, to kind of associate the URL with the file. But... Basically, you have a PHP file name and a generally predictable entire file name. Knowing that it's in that lib font, um, they could just go and it's under WebRow. They can just go and access that file directly as long as they have a valid font file. Only needs to load, put, it, put PHP code in the font's copyright, leading to full code execution on the server through it. So it's just a fun chain. You've got a bunch of, or you've got several issues here. I think a key thing that I want to call out though with this is when you download user content, don't give the user control over the file name. If this were just saved as like a random hash, especially because they all they have that lookup step. They have the uh, font family cache file, which just contains like a mapping of font name and the file name that's located at. There's no reason to use like a pretty looking name in the file system. It doesn't matter. It just needs to be able to find it. So by doing that, even if it does live in the web route, it's not going to be executable in almost any scenario unless it's actually scanning every file. Uh, usually it's like, you know, looks for .php or something uh, when the file exists and then uses the PHP runtime on it. Um, not storing things in web route is another big thing. Just don't do it, especially user data. Um, 
for DOM PDF as a library, they don't know where they're going to be used. So they just kind of have to store relative to their own directory. That is a fair choice on their part. Or somebody using it should have a separate include path. Um, I think those are kind of the two big things that I would call out. It's like, one, just looking at code, things in WebRoot, and not giving the users influence over file names. Uh, that tends to be... The influence over file names in PHP applications specifically can really lead to a lot of bugs. Obviously, path traversal, which they did actually try and prevent here. Um, they did prevent uh, path traversal, but still, you know, it didn't really matter when you can just put PHP in that directory itself. Uh, good write-up, though, too. Um, walk through everything, even though it is using, like, a demo-ish site rather than actual code. Pretty solid write-up all around, I think. Yeah, the actual target site that this was done against was, like, obscured uh, and undisclosed, so they had to kind of emulate the setup a little bit with a demo. Uh, yeah, I mean, do you, you aptly covered it. There was kind of multiple issues here, um, especially on that defense and depth angle of, like, just don't allow, you know, just don't put it in the uh, the web directory. Um, one thing that I, I thought was interesting while you were talking was I was reading through some of the final notes, and you mentioned earlier on about the remote file fetching where like the font files and stuff would be fetched remotely, even if is remote enabled was, was not set to true. Uh, it seems that was changed in uh, 0.085. So um, they kind of call out this, this fact here where in the preconditions for this attack being viable, uh, they say DOM PDF version under equal to 0.0.8.5 is being used or the is remote enabled is set to true. So um, kind of interesting that that behavior kind of changed because uh, when you initially said it like that seems like kind of a fair compromise to have like yeah having remote enabled um set to false and then still allowing remote files is kind of weird but when you're talking about things like font uh, or fonts and stuff it's so common for that to be cached on like a cdn or something so i could kind of see that exception being reasonable but it seems that is one thing that changed in a later version so well, it's also uh, one of those things that I feel like it's really easy when you kind of get into the weeds, just really deep into the code to forget about the fact that there are these settings. So then you write your code and it's like, okay, let's fetch this file and just do that. Not really thinking about um, how it should work or how it should respect these settings. Like, I think it's just easy for a developer to miss the random settings low down like that. Like, you know, font loading isn't really where you necessarily think of for all of the remote file access um in fairness also for dom pdf they do have like a very clear writing on like remote file access is probably not what you want um in terms of turning on that setting so like they have it it's a dangerous setting and they're clear about it which is exactly what they should do is be clear about it they just happen to miss checking that setting in one area yeah, that's a fair call out with uh, with devs just not respecting the setting or not being fully aware of it when they were writing that feature. Um, the way I kind of read it was maybe it was intentional to support, you know, the CDN type stuff. But yeah, could be. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, it could go either way. Not not totally sure. But either way, I mean, on the later DOM PDF versions, that's something that's uh, that mitigates this attack a little bit uh, is the fact that that is remote enabled setting has to be set to true. 
All right, so we'll get into our last topic here, which is a post from CrowdStrike's research team on a named vulnerability in Cryo, uh, which is the container runtime engine used for, for Kubernetes, uh, named Cryate Escape. Or uh, I, I don't know if there's a better way of saying that. It's a little bit weird, but, you know. Um, the vulnerability was introduced in a commit made in September of 2020 when they shifted to using the pins utility to set kernel options for a pod. Um, the problem is when sysctl support was added to pins in version 1.19, uh, attackers could set arbitrary kernel parameters with no validation on them. Um, well, a little bit of validation. It, it seems that Cryo does try to validate some sysctl settings before they get mapped to pins arguments and passed to pins, but all they seem to do is ensure that the key is valid. Um, they do some checking on the key, but they don't do checking on the value. Um, so by just passing, you know, plus and equals characters uh, to set additional kernel settings, um, that that's allowed because there's no sanitization on that on the sysctl values. Um, the way they took advantage of it in this POC was to set the kernel core pattern setting, uh, which is used for core dumps to get a malicious executable ran, which is hosted in a separate pod. Um, and that's so going to that be that binary is going to be ran as root. Yeah, that executable will, will be run on the host, not in a separate pod. So something crashes. Or sorry, yeah. And yeah, this is code execution on the host from a pod. Well, yeah, from it's anybody in the host namespace. Yeah, um, this is anybody that like there is a big ask here of this is you need to be able to deploy a container and actually set up these settings. So there's a lot of like internal attacker surface there. If you're you know a corporation, have developers able to do this. Not in terms of um external attackers like you need this very high level of access to pull this off so it would be part of perhaps a chain or something rather than just like everybody using this is vulnerable like it does take kind of that insider somebody who's al already got a foothold inside of the system to be able to deploy containers now they're just escalating to uh the host route Yeah, so a lot simpler of an attack than I expected for something of this nature. Usually when we're talking about container escapes, it's a fairly complex um, and convoluted attack chain that that uh, goes in multiple steps. But, uh, you know, in this case, um, it's literally just the fact that you can set those those kernel settings uh, and be able to trigger a core dump to, to get a malicious executable ran. Um, there is a bit of, like, setup required by the attacker here you have to get the the pod that's hosting the, the malicious executable and like the target pod um on the same node which they they mentioned like brute forcing um for that i believe using um uh daemon sets uh which i'm not fully familiar with kubernetes so i, I can't really comment too much on that but uh, it doesn't seem like it's a, a big hurdle to get over. But yeah, I mean, as far as container escapes go, uh, there's nothing too crazy going on with this attack. Um, it's it's very straightforward and easy to understand, even if you're not in the you know Kubernetes ecosystem. So uh, I thought it was cool for, for that aspect of it. I feel like um, we actually talked about a pretty similar vulnerability recently. Um, I, think I can't think of one, but... Well, it wasn't... It was another one where it was like the volume names, uh, being able to set like a volume you could escape and then mount unexpected volumes like off the host or something. Um, I feel like we covered it maybe a few weeks back on a binary episode. 
Either way, I mean, it, it was, as I remember, just another container thing where they weren't fully escaping the parameters going into actually setting up the container, leading to a wider escape. Um, so, oh no, I, I was reminded of that here. Unfortunately, I don't have the link to it. If I find it, I'll toss it in the show notes. I think I might have found what you're talking about, actually. Um, it was a little bit more than a few weeks ago. It was in December, uh, on our December 6th episode. Uh, we talked about a race condition during creation of subpath bind mounts inside of the container. Um, so, it, yeah, that was kind of going into the subpath storage system in Kubernetes. and uh, But I, it, it was a little bit different with like how it worked, because it, it was basically a talk-to attack. Um, Okay. So yeah, if if you want to check out what what Z's referring to there, that was on our December sixth episode. What but was yeah, in, I mean, oh, found it here. Um, or found the link to the episode. So that'll be in the notes. Yeah, but uh, but like I said, fairly simple attack. They do have a lot of the steps put in detail there, so you can see like all the code snippets and and whatnot. Um, and you can, well just understand how the attack works at like the command level. But uh, yeah, that you don't really need to look at those snippets too closely. Um, the overall style of the attack is, is pretty well, pretty well laid out in the, in the post. Yeah. The attack's um, pretty straightforward. And I kind of like seeing that with these cloud ones. Oh, like you said, oftentimes we do have these more complex chains and this one's just like, yeah, you, you inject in there. Of course, in a real chain, you would have more issues before this actually get to the point of being able to deploy a container or pod. Yeah, for sure. Uh, was there something you wanted to bring up on uh, on the other container escape quickly, or were you just bringing it up just so that it's... Uh, no, I was in... just reminded of it, and at least how I remembered it, I thought it was somewhat similar um, in oh, terms okay. of um, how the injection was at least getting in there. Uh, sounds like I might have just misremembered. I will also say that the summary for this on the actual advisory for it um, doesn't go into as much detail as the CrowdStrike post, but it does kind of get more to the point over what the issue is. Um, so if you just want the summary, a you know, little bit better there. And also uh, mitigating it by using the manage NS, NS lifecycle setting, setting that to false. Which will then have, which will basically then move who manages these values. Um, they also talk about an admission webhook blocking it at that level, seeing all if I'm getting added, and if it has a plus somewhere in the value, uh, get rid of it or deny it. Um, so there are ways of kind of dealing with it in the meantime, but this has or will be patched in the versions indicated, which I don't feel like reading out. <laughs> All right. Um, but yeah, unless you have any other notes, see, we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show because that's all the topics that we have for today. No shout outs this week. All right. So like I said, that's all the topics we have for this week for the bounty episode. Uh, thank you everyone who tuned in. VOD will be up on YouTube and Spotify and other platforms tomorrow. As always, uh, remember to check out our discord or follow us on Twitter. Uh, links for those are on our site or in the chat and we'll be back tomorrow at 7 PM Eastern 4 PM Pacific for the binary topics. And we'll see you then.